0: Well, today we are starting a new sermon series in the book of Ephesians. And I love that we're actually starting this series on the first Sunday of the new year. You know, at the start of the new year, we often look back at the year that passed and we consider all of the things that took place and how they impacted us. But we also look forward to the year ahead and we resolve to live in new and better ways. With the hope of having a healthier, fuller, richer life. In the book of Ephesians, it's similar to that. Paul, the author, he divides this letter into two parts. The first part, chapters one to three, they look back and it's a summary of the gospel story, all that God has done throughout salvation history. While the second part, chapters four to six, it looks forwards, describing How the good news of the gospel should reshape every part of our lives. Commentator Daryl Johnson, he says, he likes to entitle the first half, "The Wonder of Being Alive in Christ," and the second half, "The Walk of Being Alive in Christ." I like that. And this phrase, "in Christ." or its equivalent, it's going to come up a lot in this letter to the Ephesians. In the passage we're looking at this morning, it comes up five times. In the entire letter, it comes up 36 times, so 31 more times after today. And it's an important phrase. And it's the reason that this series is entitled Alive in Christ, because hopefully by the time we reach the end, each one of us will have a fuller picture of what it means to be in Christ and how that should reshape our lives. The Apostle Paul, he wrote this letter to the Ephesians in 62 AD when he was sitting in a Roman prison cell in Rome. Paul was quite familiar with the Ephesian church, having visited them twice. The first time in Acts 18, it records a very brief visit. But in Acts 19, it records a stay where he was there for about two and a half to three years. Though ancient and located in modern-day Turkey, the city of Ephesus has many similarities to the lower mainland of Vancouver, where we live. Like Vancouver, Ephesus was a port city just off the Aegean Sea, and it was the largest trading center in Asia Minor, making it the third most important city in the empire, right behind Rome and Athens. Like Vancouver, Ephesus was an urban town. It had a population of about 250,000, and it was culturally diverse. People from throughout the Middle East and the Roman Empire lived in it. And finally, just like Our fair city, where we live today, Ephesus was a city of diverse spiritual beliefs and practices. There were two main religions practiced in Ephesus. The first was the worship of the Greek goddess Artemis, who is also known by her Roman name Diana. And Ephesus was the home to a massive temple built for Artemis, who was the goddess of sexual fertility. The people of Ephesus, they were obsessed with magical practices and spiritual powers, and so they believed that Artemis was their defense against other opposing powers and spirits. The second major religion in Ephesus was the imperial cult. This was the worship of the Roman emperor as god. A temple dedicated to Caesar Augustus was also constructed in Ephesus, where he was worshipped as the Son of God and also as the warrior God who had imposed unity and order on the world. So you can imagine that for those Ephesians who came to faith in Christ, they would be given a radically new understanding of the world from the one they formerly lived in. A totally transformed way of seeing relationships and unity, power and authority. And that new understanding would dramatically change how they lived their lives. And that's what the book of Ephesians intends to do for you and I. For us living in the lower mainland today. As theologian Walter Brueggemann says, Ephesians gives us a new set of glasses, an alternative reading of reality. And this alternative reading of reality that is shaped by the gospel should not only give us a completely new understanding of our reality, but it should also dramatically reshape our lives. And in the passage we're looking at this morning, we see that despite what our circumstances may say, in Christ, we are blessed beyond belief. If you have your Bibles, turn with me, to Ephesians chapter 1 and we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 14 and speaking of putting on new glasses Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus the faithful in Christ Jesus "'Grace and peace to you from God our Father "'and the Lord Jesus Christ. "'Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ "'who has blessed us in the heavenly realms "'with every spiritual blessing in Christ. "'For he chose us in him before the creation of the world "'to be holy and blameless in his sight. "'In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship "'through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will.' into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in, the heaven, in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Well, in this passage, there are two sections. The first is, In verses 1 and 2 are an introduction, and the second, verses 3 to 14, are an outpouring of praise by Paul given to God for all that he has done through Christ. And the first thing you might notice as I was reading this is how Jesus is central to it all. Christ is mentioned 11 times in this passage, and all the wondrous ways that God has blessed these believers happen through and because of Jesus. It is Christ, in Christ, that we are blessed beyond belief. Paul starts by introducing himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. And the word apostle, it means sent one. And the word Christ, it means Messiah or King. And that's how Paul sees his entire life. He doesn't view himself as a prisoner to Rome, nor does he see himself as a former Pharisee. Paul's not defined by his past or his present circumstances. Rather, his life is defined by being in Christ. Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus where he had intended to arrest and persecute Christians. But ever since Jesus appeared to him, Paul has seen himself as a messenger for King Jesus. It is Jesus who gives his life meaning, purpose, and worth. And that's how it should be for all believers. It is certainly how Paul viewed the Christians at Ephesus. He addressed them here as God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, calling them holy people or saints does not mean that Paul thinks that they are perfect. Theologian Lynn Kohek She says, the term holy carries the sense of being set apart for a sacred purpose. Much like the temple, it would have been reserved for religious rituals, not profane or mundane activities. It kind of reminds me of the fine china that my mom would bring out for special occasions. We only used it at family gatherings such as Easter or Thanksgiving. It was never used for weekly meals like Taco Tuesday. And Paul describes just who these set-apart ones are. It's the faithful in Christ Jesus. See, just like Paul, Jesus has given these Ephesian believers a new identity too. They are no longer defined by their past or present circumstances. And by setting them apart, Jesus has given their lives new meaning, purpose, and worth. They are not saints because they are perfect. They are saints because they are in Christ. In the final part of his introduction, Paul greets them with grace and peace. Now the word peace is the Hebrew word shalom, and it means peace, but it could also be used as a, simply as a way of saying hello and goodbye. That's how Jews used it. While the Greeks or non-Jews, known as the Gentiles, they actually use the word for grace in the same way. Later on in the letter, Paul addresses the relationship between these two groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, who made up the church in Ephesus. But there can be little doubt that he is using these two phrases here to foreshadow what he is going to say to them later on. And that is that they have both found grace and peace from God and Jesus, and that they are no longer two people where one gets peace and the other grace. Rather, they are one people for whom God is Father and Jesus is Lord. Then in verse 3, Paul begins his outpouring of praise to God. And what a magnificent proclamation this is. Not only does Paul cover an incredible amount of profound theological implications the gospel has in this section, but it feels like he does so without ever pausing to even take a breath. In fact, in the original Greek, verses 3 to 14, They are one sentence. So he begins by saying, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Did you catch what it says there? He praises God who has blessed us, but look at where he blesses us in the heavenly realms the heavenly realms, is not a place in the future. Nor is the heavenly realm a place up there above the clouds. A biblical view of God's creation includes a dimension known as the heavens that is beyond our world and is most of the time beyond the reach of our human senses, and yet this other dimension, it interacts with our earthly space-time reality. The Bible says that at the very beginning, God made the heavens and the earth, that sin has impacted both of these realms. We humans, we rebelled against God and we decided to go our own way here on the earth and mutinous angels revolted against their creator in the heavenly realms. Yet the Bible says that Jesus' death on the cross defeated sin in both of these places, enthroning him as the Lord of all creation, heaven and earth, and God plans to restore both dimensions, and that on the day when Christ returns, the two shall be one without any division. But in the meantime, the heavenly dimension is where Christ is alive and enthroned. And it is also in that dimension where Paul says, you and I are blessed in the heavenly realm. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, I know that if I trust in Jesus, I will be blessed to go to heaven one day, but that's not today, that's in the future. But this is not what Paul is saying here. He says that you and I are blessed in the heavenly realm right now. How could this be? It's because we are in Christ. In Ephesians 2, he will say, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive, in, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and sealed us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming age, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So yes, there is a future element to come in the age where God will show us incomparable riches of grace. But there is also another reality for us right now if we trust in Jesus, where we have been made alive with Christ, where we have been saved and raised with Christ, and a reality where we are right now seated with him in the heavenly realms in Christ. Are you starting to see how our lives on earth and the life in the heavenly places are inextricably intertwined. This is the alternative reading of reality that Ephesians gives us that Walter Brueggemann was talking about. Since Christ has ascended into that other dimension, and since we have been united to him, somehow we too live in that other dimension. Daryl Johnson says living and navigating our way around our true location is what the rest of this letter is all about. So despite being in prison, because Paul is also in Christ, he is so much richer, so much freer, and much more alive than anyone around him would ever think. And the same goes for you and me. Our current state of affairs are not what they appear And your earthly circumstances, they don't tell your whole story. If you are in Christ, then you are blessed in the heavenly realm with every spiritual blessing. We are far richer, far freer, and far more alive than we may think or feel. But we need to put on the glasses that Ephesians gives us in order to see that in Christ, we are blessed beyond belief. Paul goes on to describe what these spiritual blessings are. In verse four, he says, for he chose us to be in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, this is a verse that a lot of Christians like to get hung up on and has divided many into different caps, which is both sad and ironic when you consider that Ephesians was written to show us how we are united in Christ. The idea that God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world has led some to believe that God has predestined all those who would believe and be saved. And it does seem like there are some scriptures that do say that. While on the other hand, others say that we have a free will and we have a responsibility to choose whether or not we follow Christ and there are scriptures that seem to indicate that. But note that in verse 4, it says God chose us in him to be holy and blameless. It doesn't say God chose us to be in him. Verse 4 is not saying that he is predetermining who will be in the Messiah. Rather, it says that he predetermined what those in Christ would become. Anyone in Christ will become like this, holy, blameless. And even if God does choose some people in advance, it does not necessarily mean that he rejects the rest. Remember back to Genesis 12, where God chose Abraham and his descendants God also makes it clear at that time that they have been elected in order to be a blessing to the rest of the world. Israel was intended to be a light that drew others into itself. Think about Jesus. He elected 12 apostles. This doesn't mean that Jesus rejected the rest of his followers. Rather, the 12 he chose were given specific responsibilities in order to bless and Christ worked uniquely through them. Or in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul writes, God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. This doesn't mean, though, that God rejects the wise and the rich. Rather, he chooses the foolish and poor to show the world that one doesn't come to know God because of any worldly status. I don't think that this morning, I will be able to bridge the gap between those who choose to believe in predestination and those who insist on free will because their debates have been going on for centuries. But I think that what scripture shows us is that God's election, it has an outward focus. He elects some in order to bless others. And Daryl Johnson says that the reason that Paul starts here with being chosen before the creation of the world is that is where our security lies. Our salvation is not in ourselves. Our salvation is grounded in God's free, sovereign, gracious choice in Christ to claim us for himself. Blessed be his name. And he chose us to be holy and blameless. Again, holy, it means set apart, but it can also mean whole, not lacking anything. And blameless, it means innocent, without any fault. This is an incredible picture. To stand before God Almighty, whole, blameless, without any fault. It's more than any of us could ask or imagine. It's certainly more than any of us deserve. Blessed beyond belief. The next spiritual blessing Paul says we have in Christ starts at the end of verse 4. He says, In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one that he loves. Now some of you might be wondering, Why our Bibles say adoption to sonship? Like, why didn't they edit that word and get it up to, you know, why doesn't it say adopted to being his children or adopted to being a son or a daughter? And the reason that Paul uses sonship here, which applies to both male and female followers of Christ, it has to do with the cultural context of Paul's day. Lynn Kohick explains... Adoption of adult sons was quite common among Gentiles in the New Testament. And the purpose of adoption was to secure the family's heritage, including the continuation of honoring the traditional gods and goddesses and managing the family's wealth. By saying God has predestined all believers, men and women, for adoption to sonship through Jesus, It means that each one of us receives an inheritance, but that we are all responsible. Just like the firstborn sons, we're all responsible to carry on the family legacy, to honor God our Father, and also to help manage the family resources. It's not as if God even needed an heir to the kingdom to adopt anyways. He always had one, He always had a son. But God was eager to bring you and I into his family and give us a share in Christ's inheritance. Look at how Paul describes God's act of adopting. In love. In accordance with his pleasure. Freely. Isn't that marvelous? Perhaps that changes for some of us our view of God the Father. He did not have to be coerced to adopt us. He was happy to do it. This wasn't something he did begrudgingly or even was impassive about. He willingly adopts us because he loves us. And here's the thing about adoption it's different than justification or salvation, it includes those things, but it's better. J.I. Packer says, Adoption, it is the highest privilege the gospel offers. And it's not just because with adoption we're now considered God's child, but because with it we also become a part of God's family. But as with any family, being a family member comes with the expectation that we are going to do life together in the family. Our Canadian culture, it's so very individualistic. But the corporate and community nature of life in Christ that the gospel insists upon, it is so countercultural that it's otherworldly. But oh, what a blessing it is. Verse 7 describes the next blessing, saying, In Christ, in him, we have redemption through, the, through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with his riches of God's grace that he lavished upon us. Now, redemption is not just another way of saying salvation. In Greek, the word redemption, it means to loosen or to set something free. So it's often used in the context of liberating people from captivity or from slavery or releasing someone from a debt that they owe. So not only are we forgiven of our sins, but God works in our lives through the blood of Christ to set us free from anything that is holding us captive or that we feel in debt to. This not only gives us incredible freedom, but also hope. You see, just as we are already blessed in the heavenly realms, though we may not feel so blessed right here and right now, We are also set free in Christ in the heavenly realms, though we may continue to struggle with sin here and now. But we can have hope because just as God promised to one day bring heaven and earth together, making our heavenly realm riches, the only reality we know, he will also make our redemption from sin, our liberation from temptation, the only reality that we experience. Come, Lord Jesus. What I love about this particular section of this passage is that it says that we have this redemption and forgiveness in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. He lavished it on us. Don't you just feel that some times in life, just call for lavishing. At Christmas dinner, we had the turkey and we had the mashed potatoes and we had the stuffing. But we had 16 people at this gathering and there was only one tiny little gravy boat. So we all had to be really skimpy pouring on the gravy. And I have to say, it was hugely disappointing. But God's not like that, right? And he doesn't have to be like that for him, like with grace. He's got riches of grace, loads of it. So he's not skimpy with our redemption and forgiveness. Instead, God pulls out his overflowing gravy boat of endless grace and he is pouring it generously and lavishly. And what does the text say? Oh yeah, La- oh, I said, meant to say luxuriously, but lavishly all over our lives. There is so much grace. We are swimming in it. Now that's what I'm talking about. Blessed beyond belief. And then beginning with verse 8, he says, With all wisdom and understanding he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth and under the earth. The mystery that Paul is referring to here is not some secret that only those with a special knowledge can understand. Mystery in the Bible refers to God's program for the world. It's his plan since the beginning to restore heaven and earth, and the key to understanding this secret is Jesus, whom God made known to us by sending into the world with the incarnation. We just celebrated that at Christmas. And so this mystery or this plan for the world, it will be put into effect or summed up when the times reach their fulfillment. And we may wonder, when is that? When will the times reach their fulfillment? Jesus' disciples, they wondered the same thing and they asked him. And this is what he said to them in Matthew 24. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father, Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Later, in 2 Peter 3, the Apostle Peter explains why God has not yet brought this plan to fulfillment yet, saying, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. But the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. So again, the key to this mystery is Jesus. And through repentance, turning from our own ways and following him and his, anyone can be in Christ. And it is in Christ where we are made alive. It is in Christ where we are saved and raised. It is in Christ that we are blessed beyond belief. Then in verse 11 to 14, it says In him we are also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, may be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. In many of our Bibles, this section here, 11 to 14, it's a new paragraph. And Paul seems to be taking on a little detour from talking about the blessings that all believers have in Christ. And now addressing a new thought about two distinct groups. But remember how I said in the original Greek, this is one long sentence. There are no periods. There is no new paragraph. I think the key to understanding this section is not separating it from verse 10, where Paul says that God, his will is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, he says, God's plan was always to have a huge family of restored human beings who are unified in Jesus the Messiah. The divine purpose became clear, Paul says, when in verse 11, we were first made into that family. And here he's referring to ethnic Jews in the family of Abraham. But when Paul speaks about you, and here he means non-Jews, you all heard about Jesus and the salvation through him, and you were also brought into this family by the work of the Holy Spirit. And here Paul is referring to events found in the book of Acts about how God's Spirit brought together Jews and non-Jews into one family in Jesus, just as God promised Abraham long ago. As I said earlier, Paul will address later in Ephesians how these two groups, Jews and Gentiles, are no longer two, but one through faith in Christ and are now one people. But here in verse 13, he says that the thing that clinches this, what seals the deal and the greatest spiritual blessing that we have been given, it is the Holy Spirit. Paul says that the Holy Spirit seals us Which not only gives you and I security, just like a wax seal secures the contents of an envelope, but the seal also designates ownership, to whom the contents belong. And because we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, who is also known as the Spirit of God or the Spirit of Christ, it means that we belong to God the Father. We belong to King Jesus Paul says that the Holy Spirit is our deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance. A deposit is like a down payment or the first installment. I remember giving a down payment for my mortgage, and even though I thought that that was a lot of money, it's minuscule compared to what the bank will receive in the end. So think about what that means for us. The Holy Spirit that we have been given, it's the first installment. The spirit we have right now, the personal presence of God in our lives, is just the first installment. That means that what we are experiencing right now is not it. This is just the initial payout of our inheritance. There is more to come. There is way more. More than we could imagine. Oh my. All of these incredible blessings that we have from God our Father that are ours in Christ should not just leave us the same. They should move us to live differently, and I believe that it begins by how we receive them. A friend of mine, uh, we were talking about Christmas, and he shared with me how his two children reacted differently when they received the Christmas gifts that he and his wife gave to them. They had explained to their kids leading up to Christmas that this year, things would be a little different. They wouldn't be able to afford the gifts that they had, the kind of gifts they had given in previous years, but they still wanted to get each of their children something fantastic. When his daughter opened up her gift, she was disappointed, and she made it known. The gift wasn't the latest and greatest model of what she had hoped for, and the rest of the morning she sulked and complained about her gift, and she even suggested that her parents cheaped out. My friend said, It frustrated him. In contrast, their son gushed over his gift. He couldn't stop going on about how great it was, and he thanked his parents profusely. Now, you can imagine how delighted my friend was with how his son received his presence. Friends, the blessings that we have in Christ are incredible. These are priceless And though we may not be able to experience their great worth completely here and now, how you and I receive these gifts, it matters. It matters because we have a Father in heaven who gives them to us in love. He gives them to us freely. Don't forget, he lavishly pours them out over us. It is his pleasure to bless us. But we also cannot forget what it cost him. The price that Jesus paid for us to receive these blessings. His body broken for us. His blood poured out for our sins. It's what we just celebrated together with communion. So like my friend's son we should gush over these blessings. We should thank God profusely. Like Paul, nothing should be able to stop us from going on and on and on about how great these blessings from God are, and it should move us to praise Him and worship Him. But in order to do that, we need to continue To put on those new set of glasses that Ephesians gives us so that we can continue to see these blessings and the alternative reality that the Bible says you and I live in. It reminds me of a time last year where Pastor Reese and I we went together with some other pastors and we played a virtual reality game and we had to put on these virtual reality headsets. And once I put them on, the world I saw was incredible. It was more vibrant, more expansive than I could have possibly imagined or even explained to you. But as soon as I lifted them up, it was instantly gone. I couldn't see it anymore. And if you and I are going to maintain our vision of that alternative reality that God wants us to see, then we need the lens through which we can see it. And it's not only the book of Ephesians that gives it to us. We find this vision of the alternative reality throughout the scriptures. And so we need to be in our Bibles daily. Finally, I'm just going to assume that this next one is probably going to be an application that's given for almost every single message in this series. We need to live in Christ. All these blessings that I talked about today are ours because we're in Christ. In John 15, Jesus tells his disciples that their goal should be to abide or to remain in him. He says, this is the only way that you're able to bear fruit, and this is how people will know that you're my followers. If you abide in me, remain in me, live in me, and abiding in him, it means spending time with him, alone, but also with others. It means talking with him in prayer, reading his word, but also obeying it and sharing Jesus with others. And living in Christ, it means he is the center of our lives and that it is Jesus who gives our life its ultimate meaning and purpose and worth. And that may seem like it demands a whole lot from us, it does. It requires more sacrifice than we could imagine. But also in Christ, we are blessed beyond belief. Would you stand with me and pray and invite the worship team to come on up? Oh, Father in heaven, how amazingly you have blessed us What great gifts that we have received that are ours in Jesus. That we could be called your sons and daughters. That the experience we have of your Holy Spirit now is just just the foretaste of what we will receive when we are with you, when your kingdom is here in whole. We can't wait. Would you help us to receive these with grateful hearts? Would you help us to give you the thanks and praise you so richly deserve? Forgive us for when we don't do that, but thanks again for being so, so gracious to us, so merciful. We love you so much. Would you help us to continue to see reality from how you want us to look at things? Would you help us to continue to see these gifts for how good they are? And thank you that you allow us to be to be in Christ, who loves us, who forgives us, who died for us, who lives again right now and who come back for us. We pray these things in his name, amen.